Hey there, before we get going with today's episode of High Performance, um, I ask just one thing of you. Please just hit the subscribe button. I can't tell you what a difference it makes to us on the show. It means we can attract new listeners. It means we can grow the podcast. And it means we can have even bigger names sitting down for these kinds of conversations. Thanks so much. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes, and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, to be challenged, and to grow. And after hundreds of conversations, we've discovered every guest has managed to unlock their potential within. But this podcast seeks to find out how. Here's what's coming up. I always thought like you have a problem when you wake up and drink. You know, eventually that became my life. I was always lying about how much I'd done, how much I'd drunk, you know, especially with my wife. Like it became like we were dating and towards our marriage. Like I was just, I lied to her every day about what I was up to, what I was doing. And I loved her, you know, and I kind of never thought that I would be that person, but I was kind of constantly hiding and lying it hit me all of a sudden that I was going to be a terrible father. And it was the, the one thing that I had always planned not to be. The only thing I'd ever planned not to be. And I was going to do that. And I was going to do that to this little little person who I loved more than I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I was going to repeat that cycle of shit. And it made me drop to my knees and, and ask for help. The biggest thing, right, is everything comes from action because you're not responsible what happened to you. You know, you're not responsible for what happened to you, but you're absolutely responsible for what you do next. And that is about making the choices in the moment that allow you to be the person you want to be rather than the person that's sucked into that past. Uh, honestly, this is such um, an emotional and moving conversation. I don't want to say too much at this point, um, apart from if you are struggling with addiction, then please have a look at the, the show notes on the description to this podcast because there is a link there to someone that may well be able to provide help. And all I ask is that you come to this conversation with empathy. This is a conversation with busted singer Matt Willis about the true impact of addiction, the truth about why it remains such a difficult thing for people in our society to deal with. But also I think it's a conversation about hope and positivity so thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the High Performance Podcast. Here he is, Matt Willis, with the truth about his life. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to High Performance. It's nice, isn't it? Thanks, yeah. nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. How would you define High Performance. I listened to this podcast, so I was like, right, I've got to prepare a proper answer for this. <laughs> but I think um, someone said it before, which I thought was a really good way of doing it, which was um, when my thoughts, my words, and my actions are aligned, but with me, there's a caveat of, and it makes me happy. Yeah. Because sometimes my 
thoughts and my words and my actions can mean something else. And, um, and it doesn't always lead me to be content. But I think when they're all kind of going the right way for the right reason, that's when I feel good. Take us to a moment then in your life where you've felt you're in the flow of high performance. Because Matthew McConaughey came on this podcast and was brilliant. He said, we spend our lives looking at the bad stuff and the dark times and the tricky moments, thinking that that will lead us to high performance. But he yeah. speaks about green lights. He's like, look at the days when you are in flow and then find more of those days. I think for me, like being on stage at Busted is when I feel like I don't really have to think about anything else. Like I normally rehearse really quite obsessively for quite a while so then I don't have to think about what I'm playing or singing and then it just becomes about kind of enjoying that moment and kind of breathing it in and I think that's when I kind of get into a bit of a kind of flow state and I don't really understand the difference between the work and the enjoyment. So that's interesting then so you're in high performance when you've already done the work so you can enjoy the fruits of your labour so how do you know when enough work is enough? I don't know. I struggle with that. I kind of, um, I'm not a very talented musician. You know, I've never really kind of been very good. After kind of years of hating myself about it, I kind of realized that I just need to work my ass off at it. So now, like, we start rehearsal. We got a tour in September. So I start, we start rehearsal in August. So I'll start in June and start kind of getting all my ducks in a row. I'll go and visit the drama and we'll play through everything. So then when I go in the room, I'm already kind of prepared. So, when you define high performance as being on stage with the band then, yeah, I'm interested in what came first for you. Was it the buzz of performing that got you to do the hard work or was it the love of the hard work and the performance was just a nice consequence? I don't know. I never, I never, really, I never really thought I'd be in a band. For me, it was a way to get somewhere else. You know, like, like, and, and, and I would have done anything, anything possible to kind of take me out of where I was, was my agenda, you know? So I think, um, and I just so happened, like I went to theater school and I was, and then I was like, right, okay, I'm going to be an actor. That's going to take me away, you know? And then I met James whilst we were at, whilst I was at theater school, he was on the same acting agency as me. So we'd meet at auditions and I met him and I was like, you've got it. I'm going to hold on to you. You know, and I, and I, like he had, he had something about him. He was the weirdest kid I've ever met in my life, but he had this something that I didn't, and I knew that I needed it. You know, so I just um, I grabbed hold of talent. Well, you talk about you needed to get away mm. from what? From where I grew up, I wasn't very very happy at home, and I kind of always I always felt like um like as soon as I was old enough, I was going to move out and move away. Like I moved out when I was 16 and it was the best thing that ever happened to me really. You know, I mean, subsequently I I joined a band with James. We started Busted together. So I went to live with his parents in South End. And it was just about, like I was always in trouble at home. I was in trouble where I lived, you know, like, and all my mates were doing the same shit that I was. It was just like very apparent that if I didn't get out, I was going to be the same. And also I couldn't stand where I lived, you know, so I kind of wanted to be as far away from that as possible. So, um, and what sort of trouble do you mean? Well, like we were, you know, typical kind of, you know, naughty kids and kind of getting into trouble and stuff. And I was, I was taking loads of drugs and kind of drinking relentlessly, you know, from a really young age, um, probably from about 12 or 13, we were kind of getting what I personally was getting as fucked up as I could. I didn't realize that my mates weren't doing as much as I was until I was much older. I look back at them going, oh, I was the only one who was kind of 
blackout and everyone else was just having a good time but i was the one going how can i get as fucked up as i possibly can on as little money as i possibly can one of the phrases that really resonates with jake and i on this is we talk about the ghosts of our childhood that often rattle around our adult bodies that until we've had chance to resolve some of these things they will continue showing up even as adults so what like when i hear you talk about blackouts and in the documentary i've seen that really moving clip where you and your brother sit on a park bench yeah and you almost apologize to each other yeah what just for our listeners what was it that you were seeking to escape we're quite a traumatic upbringing in our house like we kind of didn't really we didn't really get along with my stepdad and it became quite kind of frictious at times and then and my brother was um well he was a couple of years older than me so he kind of had the ability to stand up a bit more as i kind of just hid you know and um and i I kind of never really got chance to kind of talk to him about that until that moment and um it was a really big big thing for us to kind of sit down and talk about that because we we're, we're very typical men in some way with that kind of we just kind of like brush past it and move forward and we've never really addressed anything like that you know so um for us to kind of i kind of always felt guilty because he left home when he was 13 he got he got made to leave and i i stayed and um and he always felt guilty for me for leaving me and i always felt guilty for not going with him so it was um it was a really big moment for us i think so you're really from the from a really early age, you're basically walking around with a sack load of guilt. I mean, you're guilty, I guess you're guilty about hiding rather than yeah. coming out and standing alongside your brother and helping him, but you yeah. were a little kid. You feel guilty about staying there when he's been forced to leave the family home. Why didn't I go with him? Mm. That is a very powerful emotion to have to carry. Did, did you just push it away for all those years when you were in the band and everything was going well and we were all seeing you, you know, playing to arenas and releasing records and getting number ones. Where where was that guilt then? I never really realised that it was guilt. You know, I kind of um I always felt shame, you know, yeah. like um which I which I knew really well. And that kind of allowed me to act in a way that I could make sense of because I, I felt shame so there's shame maybe take drugs and drink more you know and I, then i'd just feel shame about what i was doing so then i'd drink more and take more drugs you know so it's kind of this perpetual kind of cycle of shame but i don't feel that much guilt right now yeah well yeah. you shouldn't because guilt yeah, yeah. implies in some way you're responsible i mean yeah, yeah. let's be totally yeah. clear yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're a six seven eight nine year old kid that yeah there's yeah. no responsibility on your shoulders it's about understanding that i guess isn't yeah, it yeah yeah totally but i think that's, that's what comes with age and kind of dealing with stuff is you yeah. kind of do kind of get to kind of look back and you you know i had a therapist once who kind of would do loads of stuff about your inner child and kind of go there and kind of look at that stuff and kind of with an empathetic eye like you're a father looking at that kid you know and that was a big thing for me because what i took away from those sessions was i was able to kind of look up when i feel these things i can kind of trace it back and go right that's that kid who's scared or upset or or feeling you know frightened and that's not necessarily who i am now and i'm not i'm not i'm not scared or frightened right now so i'm kind of i'm able to change that narrative a bit i'm particularly interested in that phrase of feeling shame yeah because i think that's one of the most pernicious emotions you can have to be ashamed of something is something that's really quite deep and almost embarrassing and can feel toxic yeah when you say permissious, that means to like permeate, like yeah, yeah. It's, in, it's in everything, right? And, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm interested in what was it that you felt shame about? 
I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know. Like when I think back to my child and kind of happy memories and stuff, I couldn't really, I can't really. Like everything's just a bit vague. And I was like, do I have these stories, or have I made them up, or have they evolved over time into something that they're not? All these kind of questions because I, I don't really think I can physically remember these moments. I've sat down with my brother lots and talked about the past now, and he mentioned kind of moments to me which were big fucking moments you know like really big important pinnacle moments in a child's development and i don't remember anything about it like nothing like i don't i'm like that did not happen like it was it did i was there you know and i don't remember it so like you're in some way you're kind of brain of some way of kind of blacking it out and kind of like but i've always kind of felt like it's like this kind of scaffolding that we build up around ourselves to kind of make who we are now like this kind of you kind of build this kind of character on top of each other that becomes who you are you know so for me to do that i kind of felt like i'd blacked out all this kind of hard shit and not dealt with it but because of that i felt some kind of weird shame and kind of darkness about it that i couldn't really come to terms with and was it there all the time or when when you moved in with james and you started writing songs and things began to happen like was there lightness in those moments yeah, I mean, I loved it, you know, like, I mean, I absolutely loved it. Like, I couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah. You know, like, it was just like, we literally, we started the band and all we dreamt of is playing this venue in South End called Chinneries. And it was like, like new kind of cool up and coming bands would play there. And it was like 200 capacity. We were like, maybe we can play there and fucking score chicks or something. That was kind of like the big goal, you know? So when we were like shooting videos and there was like camera crews and all this kind of stuff yeah. around, I couldn't quite believe it was happening, you know. So there was there was loads of massive, amazing moments, but I still found my way to kind of black out and kind of and kind of, even though I should have been enjoying all the fruits of what what was happening, I couldn't help but feel like I didn't belong or didn't deserve and, it. And is there an argument that that almost makes it worse? Because then there's another voice in your head going you should be loving every minute of this because you're now in a band, you've now got your dream, you've had a number one single, you're touring, you're famous, you're like you're everything you ever wanted and dreamed of and then a lot more. Yeah, Yet yeah. still these thoughts are there, still the shame is there, which probably adds to the... Absolutely breeds more shame. Yeah. Know, like, um, and also I was acting in ways which weren't necessarily conclusive to the pop image. I mean, Busted was kind of a... a it was in a weird place because it wasn't really a rock band, so we weren't like cool enough to be accepted by that world but we weren't really a stereotypical pop band so we weren't really accepted in that world so it was kind of this weird kind of like skater kids who couldn't skate in their own lane you know and it kind of didn't really make sense so kind of like we always felt a bit like the outsiders but then i mean when it got when it got really big and successful it kind of came up as a massive surprise to me like i didn't really see it coming and then i was like wow this is we're fucking playing Wembley and stuff, you know. It didn't really ever... I didn't see the rise. I didn't see anything. It was just suddenly dawned on me that we're kind of doing this cool shit. But could you connect the hard work you'd done of learning an instrument, of writing these songs? Could you connect that with the success or did that feel uh, extraneous to you? I think that's the that's the thing. Like we, we, we wrote these songs in Jay-Z's bedroom and we wrote silly songs which made us laugh. And um, that's all we kind of did. Like I never really thought that there would be taken seriously or made into an album or anything so we were kind of like i was really shocked that these were doing well you know in a way because we just we we also we when when i met james he played piano like 
with one finger here and three fingers here you know and i played a, a, like four chords on the guitar and that was it and that's how we wrote the whole first album really it's like you were never meant yeah. to be a band right ne never meant to happen no. you know like it was such a kind of like organic kind of punk rock way to start really we really couldn't do much we we're just writing kind of like from our life and it seemed to resonate with people and then i think what really et me up was the fact that i was never a bass player um, I could play guitar basically to write songs. Like James is a much better guitar player than me. And we write these little songs on guitar. Like I I could play like most of the chords, you know, in like a scrappy little way. And then we got signed and they were like, right, well, Charlie and James are much better at guitar than you. So you'll play bass. And I was like, I don't have any desire to play this instrument, nor do I want to. And it was kind of pushed on me. And it took me fucking ages to learn it, like really, yeah. really long time. And I kind of, and I felt really inadequate with it. And then when I had to sing with it, it became a different minefield because like to play, I could learn to play it all. But then when I had to sing, like playing bass and singing is really hard because they're like alternate rhythms. So you're singing something different to what you're playing. And I found that really hard. So I was kind of constantly kind of feeling less than for that and kind of feeling like a bit of a fraud. I look at this though, and I think that all of this is, actually in a weird way the epitome of high performance because yeah. if you if you think of what you did you ended up in a band that did the amazing things that busted did but you ended up in that band despite childhood traumas you ended up in that band despite the fact that you felt like you were in a band that didn't fit anywhere in the sort of spectrum of music you were in that band unsuccessful despite the fact that as the band grew and become more successful that only increased your shame because you struggled even more with those things from your childhood and then you get forced to play an instrument that you don't even want to play and the band that you don't know where fits yeah <laughs> that you're only in and you still got these childhood traumas it's like it's like everywhere you look there's challenge 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 yeah yet you're in it and you're doing it and you're learning it and you're singing and you're performing and you're signing autographs and your fame is growing like that's high performance yeah, I think that's you're you're so right. Like I I, I couldn't look at it in that in that way at the time. No. I was just kind of going through it and kind of panicking. But um, I think that's you know that's life, isn't it? You kind of learn in the struggle, you know. And I think we all kind of live in that struggle, you know, a lot of the time. But what comes out of it is an ability to make other things less painful. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, like um, I, I, I think of it the same way as why I get in this bloody ice tub every morning. You know, I hear about all this kind of stuff that it makes your inflammation and good for your heart and stuff like that. I don't do it for that reason. I do it because I hate doing it and I get in it every morning and I never want to get in it. But when I get in there for three to five minutes, I get out and nothing in my day is going to be as difficult as getting in that freezing cold tub every morning. So that's why I'm one of those annoying wankers who talks about cold tubs all the time. But it's been but it's been really big for me because because I, I get in it and I'm like right cool anything else is kind of easy, you know. But I think you're right. Like it's about it's about you know learning to kind of um to kind of deal in the mess, yeah. You know and kind of kind of come but, through. Uh, it. But have you got to a point yet where you can look at it and go, look how strong I was. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, I have got to that point. Like, especially now, like, Busted is in the best place it's ever been, you know, and it kind of feels like we really kind of know what we are and what we do. And I think that's taken a long time for me personally to get to. But I feel like now there's nothing that I don't feel like we could do in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard when you've got three creatives because that's the biggest problem with us is that we've got three different creative brains who all have different ideas and want to push different things, which is hard, but then that becomes through compromise, becomes easier. But, yeah. then, you know, it's, um, I do feel like I've, I've learned a lot from that. 
Can I go back to that period though when you when you're learning bass and you're having to learn about performing? Mm. Were you still getting pissed? Were you still taking drugs in that period? Yeah, the whole time. It was a daily thing for me from a young age, you know, like I think I never thought of it as a daily thing. Like I didn't um I always thought like you have a problem when you wake up and drink. You know, eventually that became my life. But it wasn't for the whole time during busted. I'd just get I'd wait till four or five o'clock and start getting wrecked you know but like and and after shows and things like that it would just be that but i always thought i always had these these things that i would never do but like i won't do that because that's that's bad then i cross that wall i jump over that wall and be like oh right now i'm doing that okay well i won't do that and then i get to there and i do that and then I, you know like, so well. like drinking in the morning was a big thing for me to kind of i don't think you can really ignore that you know when yeah. you wake up and you've got the physical kind of when you become physically addicted to something, it's very different to when you, to when you're non-physically addicted. You know, when you, when you, like, literally, if I didn't drink first thing in the morning for a few years, like, I would physically shake and have seizures and and all this kind of horrible stuff. So, what stuff. age are you when this is happening? This is about twenty twenty two to twenty five. Right. I had to drink as soon as I woke up, and I hated myself for it. But and I'd find kind of find ways of rationalizing it. You know, like I felt like um, something horrible was going to happen to me unless I did. And then I would I would hide things around so I could always do it. Like I had this kind of routine of waking up in the morning and I had a load of stuff stashed in my airing cupboard in my bathroom and I'd kind of flush a chain, open a can, drink that, and then I'd feel a bit of ease and comfort and kind of carry on with my day. And then, So that was the first boundary. What was, he said you were Well, there was a lot more before back. that. There was a lot more before that, kind of like, um, there's loads of things. Like I never thought I would have to lie about my drug taking. You know, I did some management and stuff because management didn't want you taking drugs. But then, you know, like the record company and stuff like that, like I'd lie about that all the stuff all the time. But I thought it was just rock and roll, yeah. you know. But then, um, like I had had moments where I was always lying about how much I'd done, how much I'd drunk, you know, especially with my wife. Like it became like we were dating and towards our marriage, like I was just, I, I lied to her every day about what I was up to, what I was doing. And I loved her. You know, and I kind of never thought that I would be that person, but I was kind of constantly hiding and lying. You know, that was a big thing for me. And would you say it got really bad at what, like 22, 21, 22? Yeah, 21, I think. When Busted ended, it was a big thing for me because before I think work kept me, I had to perform. You know, I had to I had to do something yeah. every day. You know, and so I could kind of level things out. I was a very functioning addict in a way. And um, I don't know if I'm very keen on that word, but like it was, uh, I was functioning. Like I could get shit done and I could still carry on with what I was doing. And it allowed me to function in the way that I needed to function, you know. But then when Busted ended, when I was 21, I suddenly was faced with the prospect of what do I do with the rest of my life? And at that time, I had a shitload of cash and loads of time and it just went fucking dangerous out mix it, for you da- da- for me it was a dangerous mix and um and also kind of no direction no purpose no kind of um everything was about the band and everything yeah. was about this train that we were on that we couldn't get off and suddenly i was off that train and i didn't know what to do next and who was the first person that said matt this is like way beyond just enjoying life I had so many people sit me down, like really kind of key figures yeah. in my life. Because that's my big thing when I watched your documentary. I was like, yeah. where were the people yeah. helping this guy out? Yeah. Like, yeah. but they were there, were they? There were some people there. There was a few people at my at my record company who were kind of much older than me and were kind of 
sat me down and were like, you know, this isn't normal behavior. You need yeah. to sort your shit out. Like quite a few people. And my manager was always telling me that, you know, but at the same time, it was, it's very hard because they couldn't ship me off to rehab because I had work to do. And at the time you're earning so many people, so much money that you've just got to keep the fucking show on the road in a way. So it's like, how do we manage this wrecking ball and kind of keep him kind of yeah. like going, you know, but I did have definite people talk, sit me down and talk to me. And there's um, no fear. Like I'm going to blow this. I'm going to ruin this. I'm like, yeah, that was always kind of, always kind of there. But I think it was kind of part of me was all right with that, you know, in a weird way, you know, like, I mean, towards the end of busted, like I was preempting the, the downfall yeah. of me in a way, you know, I was kind of almost begging for it, you know, because I feel like I'd kind of had enough of living like this for such a long time. And then it took me years then to kind of come to, come to grips with it. But then it was, um, I was always kind of waiting for that moment of it's over, yeah. you know? And when was, when was that moment? It came when my daughter was born, like she was about eight months old. I think a few things had happened before that. Like I, I got signed to, as a solo artist, when Busted ended, they gave me this amazing opportunity at the record company, gave me a great record deal for a solo record. And um, I never really wanted to be a solo artist, but I was like, great, something to do, brilliant. You know, and, um, and I really fucked that up. Like, that was the biggest kind of failure I'd ever really experienced then. Explain what happened. Well, I kind of, um, I was given an amazing budget and kind of could work with anybody I wanted to, yeah. you know, studios that were, incredible recording studios and, and people and their time and their effort and I was just not turning up I wasn't there you know and I'd leave people waiting I'd kind of you know the album took three times as long to record as we said because I wasn't writing it and at the time I was working with this amazing guy called Jason Perry who was so worried about me you know it was kind of like he had a really hard thing because he had to get an album made from me but all he wanted to do was take me away you know, and it was, um, so it was a really hard relationship for him to have to deal with. And then that bombed, you know, that, that record kind of came out. It wasn't, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very right. You know, it didn't really make any sense. None of it kind of came together as an album. It was all over the place. Like everything Busted did went to number one, like everything, you know. And so my first single went at number 11. And for a new kind of artist, that would have been great. But because everything from Busted had gone to number one, it was a massive kind of, failure and for a guy that's living with shame how did that make you feel embarrassed and kind of um there was two things going on one is that i kind of i knew that it, i hadn't done the right job i hadn't done a good enough job and that, so but part of me was like was quite relieved that i hadn't tried as hard as i could because it had failed and i could kind of rely on that well i was fucked up it wasn't a big deal you know but actually it killed me that that didn't work because i think at that point, I didn't have anything else going on. And that was the only thing that I had to strive towards, you know. So it was um, when that didn't work out, it was a big, a big kind of dawning moment on me that, you know, you have very little to do right now. And know? when this happens, how do people deal with it from the record label's perspective or the PR companies? Like, do they sugarcoat this and go, mm, you know, the economic conditions aren't quite right for solo artists at the moment? And we th Or do they just go, we gave you a chance and you blew it, mate? Well, I think people stop picking up the phone, you right. know, and people stop checking on me and stop kind of like... And that sends a message. It sends a message, you know, like suddenly when your diary isn't full, you know, and you've got nothing happening and no one's really caring about... And the offer for a second album was not there... 
you know, and I was like, what happens now? Kind of that kind of thing. It was a very, it was an obvious sign. I'd heard of this happening to loads of bands that my mates were in. So I kind of knew what was happening. And the answer was more drink and more drugs, wasn't it? The answer was, yeah, just just hide away and, and drink and use. Did you go into rehab while you were in Busted or only after? No, only after. Right. Like, so who while, sent you? Whilst I was making the first record, um, I knew I was in real trouble with everybody. And I kind of um, hadn't been turning up to sessions, I hadn't been doing stuff, and they were spending a lot of money on me. And so I kind of went, I need to do something dramatic to kind of get people on side again. So I, I went to rehab and I went to this really posh place and I kind of just went, right, I'm going. That's it. And I kind of went within a few days. What an interesting way to describe rehab, to get people back on side. Yeah. So it almost is like, it's almost like you're talking about it, like I haven't got a problem, but these people have. So I'm going to go to rehab to sort their problem with me out. Do you know Absolutely. what I'm saying? It's exactly was my thought pattern. Really? You know, I was like, these people seem to think this is a problem. So I'm going to go and show them that it's not, you know, by kind of going, what's the most ultimate way of doing that? Well, I'll go to rehab and show them I'm fine. You know, and I went there and I came out I went there for two weeks, I think, the first time, and I came out and I, I drunk the next day. Because then you can't you know, be truthful in rehab because you don't even feel you should be in rehab. I was just counting down the days till I could leave. You know, I said I'd, just said I'd give them 14 days because we had to do a, a single promo. And so I had to start promo on this date. So I've got 14 days, right? Okay, you got me for 14 days. And I literally just counted down the days. And six of them were on a detox to come off booze. And then once I was in therapy and stuff, I just kind of stayed still, waited, counted down my time and left. And the second time I did exactly the same thing, but for the people I was working with and for Emma, because she was really worried about me and kind of, I knew I was in big trouble. So I kind of went there to kind of go, well, I'll take it seriously this time, you know, but I really wasn't. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do and kind of like get people off my back a bit. Today's podcast is brought to you in association with AG1 and it is one of my non-negotiables, one of the things that um, I make sure that every single day I bring into my life. So basically, let me just explain very quickly, AG1 is an all-in-one multivitamin. It has all of the nutrients, it has all of the goodness that I think my body needs in any given day. I know there's loads of different supplements out there. Trust me, I've tried most of them. I ended up taking about nine or ten different tablets at one point. But what I love about AG1 is that it's over 70 high quality vitamins, probiotics, whole food sourced ingredients. And it's a kind of 10 second part of my daily routine that makes a day long difference to my life. So I grab the powder, I put it in a shaker, put a bit of water in, shake it, drink it, and that's me done. And I promise you, when I'm not taking AG1, I notice the difference. I'd love you to give it a go. And if you're looking for a simple, effective investment for your health, try AG1. Honestly, it is incredible. Me, my wife, a lot of my friends, we all swear by it. And I've got an offer for you. You can get five free AG1 travel packs and a free whole year's supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. If you want to take advantage of that offer, just go to drinkag1.com forward slash high performance. That's drinkag1.com forward slash high performance. It's been a game changer for me. It just might be for you. Check it out. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And what was your relationship like with yourself? Because I'm like a theme that I'm hearing from a lot of your answers, Matt, is that you didn't value yourself much. So Busted was a success in spite of you. Yeah. You know, the, the, your solo album flopped because you didn't try. It was yeah. almost like you didn't put yourself, your, your whole self out there so you could find an excuse or mitigation if things didn't. So if it came off, there was a reason. If it didn't come off, there was a reason. Yeah. What was your relationship was... like with yourself, your own self-worth? I think that was the biggest problem with me. You know, like I remember doing um, a TV presenting gig. You know, and I was kind of like, everything was going badly. And they were like, right, okay, well, we're gonna, we got your presenting gig on this music thing. And um, I was like, well, how do I, how do I do that? How do I present? And they were like, I'll oh, just be yourself. I remember them telling me that. I was like, wow, I fucking hate myself. I don't want to be that guy. I always had this overwhelming kind of self-hatred that kind of followed me around. And I kind of, um, so I put on these different masks of people that, I think people would like, you know, like Matt from Busted was a fucking great one. You know, like he was, his people liked him, people invited him to places, you know, that kind of stuff until they didn't, until I became a liability, you know, but um, that self-worth thing was a really hard one for me to kind of come to terms with. It's still a struggle sometimes now, but I kind of have ways of kind of, you know, like, is that a fact or is that a thought? those kind of things come into play all the time. Cool, give us an example, because I think there's people listening to this that will be able to recognise some of those. Yeah, like, um, like I always kind of think, you know, when something is about to happen or going to happen, be it good, bad or otherwise, um, there's always a thought that creeps into my head that you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you're a fraud, all this kind of stuff. I have to really control that thought pattern and not let it escalate so i kind of always have this thing is that a thought or is that a fact you know and then i can kind of go right okay what is that where's it coming from because it's always a thought it's no you know i mean if someone asked me yeah. to run a marathon tomorrow i'd say that's that's a valid thing for me to worry about because i don't know what to do there and i've never done it before you know but most of these things in my life i've kind of done and i kind of can, can prove that i can you know but i have this ability to put a wall in front of myself before it's begun with self-loathing you know so um i have a loads of practices i do daily like i start my day with a gratitude journal which is the which i learned in rehab the last time i mean i've passed this on to so many people i know especially in recovery because it's the biggest thing of my day like it kind of starts my day with you know it seems really naff and cliche but it's like to i can wake up on the wrong side of the bed every day if i want to you know, and it kind of so by waking up and starting about three simple things that I'm grateful for, it changes my thought pattern. You know, I can see that I'm grateful for them because I deserve them. You know, and that's a very different way to think about them rather than I'm grateful for them because I'm chancing my way through it. I think of ways that I'm I'm worthy of those things that I'm grateful for. I'll give you a personal example. I, I remember when I became a dad, what really left me feeling bereft once was 
um, somebody had said to me, like, I, I was pushing myself to the edge of burnout and somebody yeah. had asked me to almost articulate that in a voice. And what had left me bereft was somebody had said to me, how would you feel if somebody spoke to your son in the yeah. way that you're speaking to yourself? And I was so horrified that I thought I need to do something yeah. to, uh, to correct this. Yeah. And I'm interested for somebody that had this self-loathing, this destructive tendency, this propensity to addiction. When you became a father, what sort of emotions, questions and challenges did that stir up for you? Well, that was the, the changing moment in my life. You know, because I, I can't really, like, like I said, I never meant to be in a band. I never meant to get a drama school and be an actor or anything. But I kind of, um, I always wanted to be a dad. You know, when I think back to everything in my life, the only thing I ever wanted to be was a father. I had the image of them in my head. I kind of could imagine myself being a dad. I knew what I wasn't going to do. You know, a very strong opinion on what I wasn't going to do and what kind of father I was going to be. And I had my daughter and she was about eight months, and I missed her crawling for the first time and my wife's birthday party because I was out getting fucked. And the next day I kind of, um, I woke up and Emma came in. She didn't shout at me, she didn't yell at me. She just told me what I'd missed and that she wasn't going to stand for it. And and it it hit me all of a sudden that I was going to be a terrible father. And it was the the one thing that I had always planned not to be the only thing I'd ever planned not to be. And I was going to do that. And I was going to do that to this little, little person who I loved more than I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I was going to repeat that cycle of shit. And it made me drop to my knees and, and ask for help, you know, for the first time ever, like, and mean it, you know, like, um, I was always kind of mitigating damage. You know, I was always kind of trying to keep people, keep all these fucking plates in the air, you know, like, but th at this point I was like, I have nothing that I can do, you know, because everything I do is, is not working. I need help. And it was, um, and it, it really, and I asked for help and I was given it. And, um, and that was the real turning point in my, in my life with addiction, really. It kind of, it, you know, people say, about rock bottoms like um which i hear quite a lot in recovery which is a terrifying prospect because i don't really like that term because you hear oh he just hasn't hit his rock bottom yet i'm like I, people die in rock bottoms all the time do we have to wait till it's one that society deems a success you know what does that mean you know whereas this this night that i had was no different to m thousands of nights that i'd had but the prospect of what I would lose and what I would what I would pass on to my child was too much for me to comprehend. So I think that was the the moment when it really it gave me something bigger than myself. In recovery circles they say a higher power. I don't know what that means, you know, but I know that I had something that was larger than myself to to care for. And that was what really turned the corner for me. Wow, I mean, it's hugely moving to hear you talk about it like that. And then you, you go into rehab after that then? No, I'd been to rehab before that. Um, before we got married, I was really in a really bad way. And so I went to, to rehab. I came out of rehab three days before my wedding day. And, um, and I was sober on my wedding day, which is amazing. And, um, and I had a honeymoon and I had a period of time where everyone seemed to be 
you know, happy with me, you know, and then I just started to fuck up again. And I think, but then when I had Isabel, I don't know, it became so much more shameful, like than more than I'd ever felt before, because it was like, I could no longer rationalize it. I could no longer deny it away. It was just me acting addictively. So you stopped then without rehab. This is without just... rehab. Yeah, yeah. But that moment, I think, gave me something that they talk about. You know, that's kind of like there's something that's larger than yourself. And then I, I did everything I was told, and I found other ways to keep my, you know, kind of addictions at bay. You know, and not even at bay, just to kind of just dismiss them and and kind of focus on being a better person every day. And how long ago was was that? That was you've now got three kids, 12, right? 13 years ago. But I relapsed about six years ago, which kind of came out of the blue, really. It was yeah. um I was a, I was away with a band and I've been I've been clean for eight years, I hadn't done anything. I was kind of in a place in my life where I felt like I was all right. And then I was on tour and someone we were hanging around with was doing gear in my dressing room and they offered me a note and I just went whoop. It's funny because relapses don't happen by accident. You know, I've been planning something like this for a while. I've been kind of knowing that I wasn't part of the party. You know, yeah. I was very much on my own all the time. And I kind of, and it was a way to keep myself safe. Really. Where had the guy gone who was on his knees in the bedroom with an eight month old saying this never happens again? Like, yeah, what, what happened to that, Matt, at this point? I think he thought he was over it. Right. I had thought at that point that I'd, Done enough. It's so devious, isn't it? Time. Addiction is so it's devious. So devious. It's almost like it's going to, you know what? You've done eight years. Yeah. Six years. So I reckon you could have a drink now. Yeah. yeah. You're fine. Yeah. You're no longer well, an the, addict. The way, so the way I, the way I like, rationalised it was very similar because I was like, well, alcohol was my downfall. I just did coke to keep me sober. So you just you thought, know? I'll take some so coke. I'll just, I'll just do just cocaine. That's all right. You know, that's perfectly acceptable. That's fine. You know, so I didn't drink the entire time during my relapse. And that, that was what allowed me to kind of rationalize using you know but i wasn't using coke like anybody else does you know i was using coke alcoholically you know like i was mm. doing it all day long every day you know and it was um and that lasted about four months you know um, until there was nowhere else for me to hide and i kind of got on my knees again to my wife and told her everything and kind of then i went and got help immediately I think we should probably talk about your wife then and her pivotal role in, in this whole story. Yeah. You said earlier on in the interview, you said, I, I just always wore different masks. Like I wore the Matt from Busted mask, which was like the fun time guy. Or Yeah. When you first met Emma, like were you wearing a mask then? And if so, how long did you wear the mask for before she sort of really got to know you? At the beginning, I was wearing the Matt from Busted mask because people liked that guy. It's weird to talk about my wife this way, but like, I was so amazed that she was even dating me. Like, like really, like I was fucking like, she was in my phone as the fit girl from MTV. I couldn't believe that she was texting me back at the beginning, you know, and kind of like these kind of things. And like, let alone that I was with her, you know. So, I mean, that lasted a while. Yeah, well, of course know. it did, because you're the guy full of shame. So yeah, yeah. you're not meant to be loved or have it, people show you affection. Exactly, you don't feel especially you not it. this like woman who I worshipped, you know, like I couldn't believe that she was with me, yeah. you know. And, like, But, you know, over time, those things, you know, we come to know the real you, and I'm not, I'm not sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing for her. But from uh, she was she she was everything I wasn't, you know. Like, I couldn't believe that she was like she was. I'd never met anybody like her. What do you mean by that? She was everything you wasn't? Well, she was um, what I suppose people would call normal, 
as incredible as she is, you know, like her family were like this this amazing unit. And they, I remember going around to her house once and um, and I'd been out with her the night before and we'd stayed at her parents' house and we woke up and then there was no plan the next day. There was nothing to do. They just hung out with each other in the in the living room all day and that's what they wanted to do. I was like, wait, so you just want to... <laughs> You just want to spend time with each other. That's all you want to do, you know, drink tea and chat and spend time. I couldn't believe that people did this, you know, like it was, yeah, yeah. it was so alien to me. I don't know. There was no bullshit with her. There was no, there was no, what you see is what you get. There was no pretense. There was no acting different in a certain situation. There was just her and she'd just be this person and everywhere she went. And it was, um, and it was in- incredible to kind of see, you know. And what um, was the effect on you of being in a, stable family environment like that people just wanting to speak to you not to matt from busted how did that make you feel it was quite hard at the beginning if i'm honest it was quite um it was really weird for me to be in any kind of like i used to hate social situations but then i'd drink and everything would be all right you know like um but like to not be able to do that and to just be there and just be was really difficult for me because I had to kind of turn it into some kind of performance or, you know, or be the, I don't know, like whatever they wanted me to be, you know, and they didn't want me to be anything, you know, which was really, really hard for me to comprehend and understand. So um, I probably acted like an absolute dick for many years, you know, kind of like trying to be this thing that I think they'd like, you know, and actually they just liked me. So people know Emma as a TV presenter. Mm. Tell us what she's like as a wife and as a mum. She's the most selfless loving person i've ever met in my life like and i can understand why she ended up with me in a way because she's a she's a fixer you know she's she sees something and she wants to fix it you know she wants she's very caring you know like um, people say she they're, they're very caring but emma is it's in her dna and i think that was what she found quite hard with me is that she didn't at the end she didn't know what else to do but she was um fun she was cool she was just an amazing, incredible human that I couldn't believe that she was kind of hanging out with me. So as an addict, what advice would you give for people out there that might be listening to this, that maybe can see some of these patterns of behavior? Maybe it's not manifesting itself in drink or drugs, but it might be other addictive behaviors like a work ethic or addiction to social media it can be a myriad of other things yeah what advice would you give for anybody out there that wants to help somebody that they see in the grip of an addiction i think this is the hardest question in the world because i've always been told that you can't help anybody until they're ready to be helped you know and i do think there is something in that i wish there wasn't because i've tried you know like i mean i know i meet people all the time and and i and i and i get people passed on to me that people are worried about and I and I talk to them and there's there's a barrier that is until until you're ready to until you're ready to accept the problem that you have it's impossible to penetrate you know and um and and even when you can penetrate it there's always the risk of something else getting in the way like I, re- I read this amazing book um by Dr Anna Lemke she talks about dopamine and kind of like the imbalance in the body of dopamine she she was um, does something which I have started to do with people because I, I, there's a difference between addiction and, and problem drinking and, and there's a difference between problem using and, and, and addiction, you know, and I think there's a real test, which is a 30-day test, right? It's if you can stay out the way from your substance of choice, whatever that be, be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it sex, be it, 
gambling, be it social media, whatever it is, for 30 days, you can reset some of those neuro pathways in your brain so you can rewire those things right it takes 30 days and you can you can but you can readdress your your relationship with that thing and if after those 30 days life is better your relationships are better you 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 feel good about yourself everything's good then maybe you have to address the feeling of do you want that back in your life and then you have to face the thing of can you bring it back in your life you know and i'm not there to say anything because like um each their own if they can and fucking good on them i wish i could actually no i don't actually wish i could but um but I, I i admire people that can you know but i i definitely can't but um and if you can't last that 30 days maybe you have a problem and what about healthy addictions though and yeah. what i mean by that is stuff that society goes oh that's brilliant that you've got such a strong work ethic but yeah. it might be crossing into the boundary of some kind of addiction or it yeah. might be somebody obsessed by a fitness goal or something like that that's pushing themselves like what's you i think it always comes down to why like for me drinking drugs don't come into my life every day but behavior does you know and it's my behavior which worries me and i can become addict like about pretty much anything right you know and i find myself getting like it quite often with things and normally my wife's the first one to say you need to pay attention to this but a lot of the time i i do pick it up myself and it's always like what am i trying to soothe mm. what you sort know, of things what? then well i mean exercise is a big thing for that for me for a long time yeah. like when i got clean i kind of um i found exercise and like there's been times in my life when i've ate at the bleep of a watch from tupperware and kind of trained for a, a bodybuilding competition that's never happening and food is a real issue for me at times you know but um i think with anything it comes down to what are you trying to dull you know what are you using this for and i have to ask myself those questions quite a lot and sometimes they're all right you know that's the thing like sometimes like working out most days is okay it's good for your health it kind of keeps you longevity all these kind of things are fantastic for but if i'm doing it as a form of punishment which can happen sometimes or if i'm doing it as a form of just getting away from everything else that can be a problem for me but um you know i think society we don't look at these in the same way. You know, we kind of, we celebrate these kind of things, like especially um, workaholics, we celebrate these people, yeah. you know, but if you look at these people who are, you know, the most powerful people, like I'm sure, you know, I don't know the relationship that Jeff Bezos has with his family, but I'm sure they miss him sometimes, you know, like, um, you know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be so much that you give up, you know, to be that kind of workaholic, you know? So, um, and for me, I have to really address those things. So would you tell us some of the key questions that you have learned to ask yourself when you think that you might be going down that path, whether it's a destructive or, or even what might be regarded as socially acceptable addiction? What are the kind of questions you ask yourself that give you a pause for thought and stop it spiralling? I think for me it always comes down to what's going on in my life right now. Am I living the way that I want to? you know, with these certain aspects of my life, which can be purpose, you know, which is a hard one for me, you know, but family is a, is the big part of that for me. Like, am I, am I fulfilling these parts of my family life, which I should be? When I'm not, it's usually because something else is creeping in the way. Am I doing everything I can for what I love? And that can be work sometimes. For me, I have a real funny relationship with that because sometimes you need to put everything you have into something 
you know, and especially with the band, there's times in my life when I have to put everything I have into this entity with my life and things can fall away. But I think there's, I listen to these people talk about how they, um, how this couple would have a quarterly, they'd sit down, they'd mark each other out of 10 on these different okay. um, aspects of their life, whether like it be provider, lover, parent, all these kind of things. And they'd mark each other out of 10. As long as they're getting 30, then they're doing okay. Right. You know, but Could like, you adopted um, that at home? no, that would not go down very well in my house, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they mark each other on it. But um, I think that's the thing, like I have these different things and sometimes one of them can fall away a little bit as long as the others are okay. And as long as I pay attention to that yeah. one, I can go back to it and build it back up, you know. Um, but I do have problems with that, you know, about finding balance. I don't know what that work-life balance is. I don't really understand that yet, you know, so um, I'm still kind of coming to, work, to terms with that. What about marriage? Um, because, you know, remaining married is is enough of a challenge for most people. Yeah. Remaining married to an addict when you have three kids and you your wife has a high profile life with demands on her own time and other things like that is a real that's a real challenge. So you clearly have a high performance marriage. What are the secrets? Brutal honesty. Yeah. You know, but that comes up in every part of my life now, which is something which I fought against so hard in early recovery. Kind of like I lied about everything. I never told the truth once to anybody. At any at any moment, really, you know, now I have to be brutally honest about everything, even if, unless it will cause the other person incredible harm, I am really honest about things. And I think mm. me and Emma have that. We're able to go, hey, <laughs> this is not cool, or this is affecting me, or you need to look at this. But I think having that kind of open dialogue is a big thing, you know, and being able to talk about stuff, you know, and plus we've got history that proves that I don't do very well with secrets, you know, like um, they can eat away at me. And what I've learned from everybody I've met in recovery is you never really get away with anything, really. <laughs> you never really, you think maybe you've got away with that from a few years ago. You haven't, you know, it, it will either come back to you in a few years or it will eat the fuck away at you for so long that it will cause something that will erupt into something else. So really kind of being as honest as possible is the most safest way. And do you have ground rules now that you and Emma work work to? Like, if you're feeling a certain way, you make sure you mention it to her. Or if she's scared about you, she definitely speaks to you about it. Do you have these? She speaks to me about it. You know, she brings up something. If she's worried or she thinks I'm not telling the truth about something, she'll right. bring it up with me all the time. I have other people who I talk to about those things. You know, like, um, I don't want to burden her with every, right. you know, crazy addiction thought that I have you know I don't think about taking drugs and drinking daily you know like occasionally like I'll walk past a pub in the summer and I'll see someone drinking a pint with a condensation coming down the glass and it'll make me go you know yeah. but I'm I'm I have this this thing which I do which is I fast forward the tape you know and I say that drink if I fast forward in four hours, I'm in a hotel room on my own taking drugs and hiding from everybody. You know, it happens every time. And there's not a single time that's ever been won. You know, never. You know, so um, I know what that is and I can, re I can fast forward the tape. In your explorations on this topic of trying to understand addiction, where have you got to in understanding how much of it is nature and how much of it would you regard as nurture? And I'm thinking especially in relation to your own children. That's something which I was I was fascinated by. And 
the thing is, I think trauma, they call it like a big T and a little T. There's big traumas and there's little traumas, you know, but trauma can be something that happened to you or it can be something that didn't happen enough, you know, which is another thing which I hear, you know, because I've met lots of people in my life who say, especially addicts who say, well, I had the most perfect childhood and I grew up in a loving, warm home, you know, and like I come from money and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't make sense that it's like that to me. And it, it, that that's when those kind of things come into play because it doesn't have to be something that happened to you. It can be something that you didn't experience or can it be something that didn't happen to you enough. And it's through no fault of anybody else. This is not, and that's a big thing for me as well is that I spent a lot of my life blaming people for the way I behaved. And that allowed me to drink and use because that, that kind of like, well, if you've been through what I've been through, you'd do the same, you know. Yep. Well, there's lots of people who don't. But I think the biggest thing, right, is everything comes from action because you're not responsible for what happened to you. You know, you're not responsible for what happened to you, but you're absolutely responsible for what you do next. And that is about making the choices in the moment that allow you to be the person you want to be rather than yeah. the person that's sucked into that past. And before we move on to our quickfire questions to finish this interview, you, you talked about total honesty. Mm. So we're sitting here having this conversation and you are weeks away from being back with the band and from touring again and the last time that you had a relapse yeah, that happened. So what part does fear play in the life of, of a recovering addict? Fear of relapse for me is huge. You know, I live with that. and I, I, But I don't, when I've not had that, I've relapsed. You know, like, so um, I don't want to let go of that, which is not always helpful, I can imagine, for a lot of people listening, that doesn't sound like a healthy way to live. But for me, the fear of, of relapsing is so terrifying that it keeps me from picking up, you know, and it keeps me from putting myself in really ridiculous situations, which I shouldn't be. And a lot of my life in the band is about mitigating that in a way. You know, I'm really open and honest with them, and I tell them what I'm able to accept and what I'm not. Yeah. You know, like we have a no drugs rule you know, in the band and, and, and our crew now and everyone that works with us that we we don't have drugs around us. You know, like, I don't mind people drinking. It doesn't bother me people drinking. But if people are doing coke in front of me, it really affects me. It's not because I want to do it. It just makes me uneasy, you know, mm. so I don't ever want to feel that anymore. So I'm like, if I can, I don't have to be in that situation. So if everyone can be on board with me, then that's great. And lucky my band are cool as hell with that. And and everyone we work with now is kind of picked and chosen because of that, <laughs> you know, so um, that's a real a good way for me to live. Great. And I think that reframing of fear from being a negative emotion to being a positive one for you and almost yeah. like a, it's like your seatbelt that keeps you safe, that fear. And, yeah. I, and I think it's okay. Don't, why should society decide that that's a negative emotion? It might yeah. be for others, but it isn't for you. And that's it cool. It isn't for me. But I think I've always been driven by a bit of fear. You know, like everything I've done has always been driven by, in some way, fear. But now I'm much better at leaning into it. Mm. You know, like I, I run towards things that scare me now, which is something which I never thought I would do. I always run away from them. But if something's challenging or difficult, I find myself navigating towards it these days. I wonder because, why that is. Exactly, exactly. Maybe it's a little bit of an addictive tendency. But I find that if you get something good from hard work, the good tends to stay around a yeah. bit more, you know, and the hard work is temporary. I just think, you know, this conversation is like an ultimate conversation about high performance. Being in a successful band, despite the shame and the self-loathing, managing to become a brilliant dad, despite the fact that you have this constant ghost and this shadow of potential addiction, managing to be in a successful marriage when you're, you've been on your knees crying in front of your wife, asking her to help you. Mm. 
you know, the ability to sit here and talk about it in the way that you can now with utter honesty. Like high performance is not gliding through life thinking this is sweet. High performance is being dealt yeah. just scoop after scoop after scoop of crap. Yeah. And look at you being able to sit here now. And of course you might never feel that real sense of freedom that perhaps you deserve for all your hard work. Yeah. But to have achieved what you have, I think is incredible. Like, no, thanks man. Thanks. Ultimate Jocko says that discipline equals freedom. I really believe that, you know, I believe there's a freedom in that as long as mm. I keep myself disciplined and I, I work a certain way, I can live a life that I love. Amazing. Right. Quick five questions, Matt. All right. The three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you would ideally buy into. Sobriety. Everything else falls apart without it. Two, gratitude journal. I have to do that every day. And three, supplementation. What's your biggest strength and your greatest weakness? My biggest strength is passion. Um, I can become really passionate about something which can, my passion alone sometimes can drive something forward. My biggest weakness is passion. I can be so passionate about something, I can forget to see anything else but that. So it's a, it's a gift and a curse. It's, um, it's, it annoys the shit out of people. What advice would you give to a teenage Mark just starting out? I had this amazing moment where I, I did um, a breathwork class, which I didn't see coming. And um, I just did this like kind of like really deep breathing class. And this voice that kept going in my head was, it's not your fault. And it kind of kept going into my brain. And something changed in me during that class. And I don't think it's anything like spiritual or something. I think it was about me accepting that. You know, and going, it isn't your fault, but you are responsible for what you do next. And that was a real dawning moment on me. So I think I'd just tell him a bit bloody earlier. Yeah. <laughs> do you believe it now? I do. I do. I really do. I really do. You know, I believe everything's about action. Is legacy important to you? Um, I think legacy is a weird word. You know, like um, for me, my kids are... I suppose my legacy, yeah. you know, you know, I've always been, you know, really worried about anything that I've done in the past that would kind of hurt them, you know, and I'm still worried about that. You know, they weren't around during my really dark times and they weren't, and I was away during my last relapse. I wasn't at home. And so I'm, but they were still around during that time, you know, so I'm, I do think about how much that will impact them. Um, but I try to do everything I can to let them know that, I'm who I am right now. Um, but they're fucking awesome. They're wicked kids. If you could go back to one moment in time, what would it be and why? I do regret the Brit Awards. We won two Brits in 2004. And I left as soon as it was finished and went to a flat and used drugs with strangers for seven hours. And my band had this incredible night you know, and like had this and there was pictures of them in a kebab shop with their Brit Awards in their hand and I wasn't there. Um, I've always regretted that. You know, if I could, I'd say stick around. And the final question um, after this amazing conversation for people that have listened to this is what would you now say is your one golden rule? The sort of final thing you'd like to leave ringing in people's ears, your secret, I guess, to high performance? I suppose it's step up. I was very easy to wallow. And I'm, I'm not okay with that anymore. I step into things, you know, I kind of try really hard to step up 
and good things happen when you do. Sometimes you fail, but that's all right. You know, as long as you kind of step up to the next thing. It's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Damien. Jake. And what a moving conversation. And I think most importantly of all, a great reminder to our viewers and listeners and followers that high performance takes many forms, but Matt is absolutely um, a high performer. Absolutely. That's the key phrase there, Jake. I think we often sort of wrestle with this idea, don't we? It's not about being number one or top of the charts or making millions. It's sometimes just overcoming a challenge in the best way that you're capable of. And I think for Matt to have experienced trauma at such a young age and to have seen the destructive path it took him down and to have sort of been able to do a a U-turn in that is incredibly inspiring. And I think maybe like for all of us as individuals, you know, I was talking about my own experience of being like quite self-loathing in some of the conversations I had and to hear somebody articulate how he'd managed to stop that destructive path of thinking is in his high performance and i loved what just sort of slipped in at the end there where we spoke about freedom and i suppose i was thinking you know with the constant fear of addiction will he ever have any freedom but then he said you know for me discipline is freedom you know if he can be disciplined if he can work on this if he can prepare himself mentally and physically to be in the best state then that does bring him freedom and i think that's also a reminder to all of our listeners that you know nothing's permanent. This guy was at rock bottom on his knees, begging his wife, crying, having missed his daughter crawling for the first time, and then look where he is now. Yeah, you know, and again, I, I, I know we referenced her a number of times as a previous guest, but when we spoke to Dr. Pippa Grange, she spoke about uh, when we're confronted by fear, we need to see, face, and replace it. And I think he's that moment of surrender that he said where you're seeing the fear that you're going to be a shit dad facing it and trying to come up with a better alternative and then replacing it with healthier, more productive habits is a really great example for all of us. It was great. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you, mate. Well, I really hope that you felt you got some true value from this conversation on high performance. Just a reminder that in the show notes for this episode, you can get information about where to seek help if you're struggling with an addiction of any kind. And I just really want to say huge thanks to you, not just for coming and listening, but for continuing to share this podcast. And I know there are so many people struggling right now with addiction. If you think that this may well help them, please reach out send them a clip, send them the episode, somehow get them to interact with it because it might just be the thing that changes the game for them. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. 